All right, friends, I've got a question for you. Why in the world would God want us to confess our sins to one another? If Jesus is the one mediator between God and men, if that's true, right, then why would God want us admitting our trespasses to another person? Why is James 5.16 in the Bible? We're, we're in the middle of this sermon series on disciplines or practices that God uses to grow us spiritually. And when we think about the other disciplines that are in this series, things like simplicity and silence and solitude and hospitality, I think there's something like instinctively inside all of us that says, yeah, yeah, those are good things. It, it would do me well to engage in some of these activities. But confession? I mean, how many of us, show of hands, are jazzed up about the prospect of revealing our sin to another person? That's kind of what I thought, yeah. So I, I've got this suspicion, you tell me if I'm right, that as we look at this list, which one of these has the potential to make us feel the most uncomfortable? It's confession, isn't it? But here's the thing. I think confession is also the one discipline on this list that has the potential to propel us forward in our walk with God more than any of the others. And I say that from personal experience. This is what I would call a high return spiritual practice. Now, just to put your minds at ease, at no point in the service will we pass microphones and solicit confessions. So you can relax there. But my, it is my hope that when you leave here, you would do so with a greater understanding of why God would want you to confess your sins to another person and a willingness to try it. And hopefully you're all still glad that you came to church this morning. So the message will follow a, a simple three-part outline. What, why, and how. What is confession? Why is it beneficial? And how do we practice it? So what is confession? Confession is humbly admitting our sins and shortcomings to another person as a means of spiritual growth. So there are three key elements to this definition. The first is that, that confession needs to involve some self-disclosure. It necessitates an admission of sin. Without acknowledgement of sin, there can be no confession. The second aspect is that this admission needs to be made to another person. This isn't something where you go and you write anonymously on some website where people who don't even know you uh, can read it. Confession happens best when we disclose our sin to another person, preferably without any anonymity involved. And third, this is for the purpose of spiritual growth. Confession is not a self-salvation strategy that somehow allows you to shore up your standing in heaven. 
The purpose of this is spiritual growth. Much like Pastor David said two weeks ago, he said that uh, God is the master potter and we're the clay. And what God wants to do is he wants to form us into vessels of his glory. And all confession is, it's just like these other practices, it's a means of, of placing ourselves on the potter's wheel. This is, a, this is a discipline that allows us to avail ourselves to the work of God. So now that we know what confession is, why should we practice it? Why admit your trespasses to another person? Isn't God the only one that can forgive sins? And the answer to that question is yes. And so for the person sitting here wondering whether it's possible to be repentant and truly forgiven without telling someone else what you did, the answer is yes. 1 John 1.9 tells us very clearly that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So God forgives sin. God is the one who cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And yet, and yet, confession is so important. It, it can be so beneficial. And I want to share with you five reasons why. The first reason confession is beneficial is that it weakens sin's power. It weakens sin's power in our lives. See, what the discipline of confession does is it, it helps restrain sin. You know where sin flourishes? In the dark. Sin thrives in darkness. It loves to run rampant when it's kept in isolation and, and it's hidden from others. Sin grows best in a secret garden. And the more we keep our sinful habits and tendencies a secret, the greater the power they will exert over our lives. I agree with the author Keith Drury when he says there's no stronger vice than a hidden one. And what's interesting is that all the 12-step recovery programs have figured this out. I mean, just think about what you know of, of, of AA. If you go to an AA meeting, how does that begin? With confession, right? Hi, my name's Andrew, and help me out, I'm an alcoholic. The, 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 the first step to getting victory is to take your struggle and to bring it into the light. Here's what Ephesians 5.8 says. It says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So whenever you take your, your, your temptations, your struggles, your sin, and you bring them into the light and you're truthful about them, what happens is some of the control that they had over your life is instantly sapped. And that's why AA is all about confession. Participants are to daily admit their struggle to at least one other person. And what happens if you mess up? What do they tell you to do? They give it a week or so? No. They say, as soon as you can, you need to let one other person know that you slipped up. Victory is achieved when that which would otherwise thrive in the darkness is exposed to the light. Many years ago, a study was conducted of 246 men who were 
involved in full-time ministry and had a moral failure. And as, as far as the, the study could discern, these were individuals who were very sincere in their faith. They went into ministry out of a desire to serve God and to be His servants, and yet all of them were involved in a moral failing. Guess what all of these individuals had in common? There was no accountability. None of them were involved in any kind of relationship where there, the, someone was... Uh, they were being honest with each other, and, and confession was a part of their lives. They were all convinced it could never happen to me. And I, I think that should be a sobering warning to the rest of us. Like, sin can overtake all of us. And much like a lion hunting his prey, I think Satan's easiest targets are those individuals who are living in isolation. Because when no one knows our struggles, the temptation to sin usually grows stronger. One of the great Christian leaders of the 20th century was a man by the name of Howard Hendricks. And he said this, he said, there's no such thing as a spiritual blowout. It always starts with a slow leak. You know what he means by that, right? A, a really bad decision is usually preceded by several smaller ones. So for instance, a, a moral failure doesn't somehow begin with someone ending up in a hotel room with a person who's not their spouse. You, you build up to that. That, that. that starts with inappropriate texting and flirting and, and entertaining thoughts that you shouldn't. But you know what confession does? It helps us pump the brakes on our sinful tendencies so that they don't take us over a cliff. Keith Drury puts it like this. He says, sin is like a fire and then it can be quenched at first with a glass of water, but left to itself, it will consume the whole house. Confessing recent sin cuts a fire break across the path of spreading sin. So I've, I've experienced this to be true in my own life. And this is one of the reasons I would commend this to you. This, this, this discipline can be a powerful catalyst for helping us grow spiritually. A second benefit of confession is that it brings assurance of forgiveness. It brings assurance of forgiveness. You know, Satan has given several names in Scripture. So in Revelation 12, he's called the accuser of the brethren. In John 8, Jesus calls him the father of lies. And when we sin, you know what Satan wants to do? He wants to come and he wants to whisper in our ear and he wants to bring accusations. And he wants to say, you're such a terrible person. You're such an awful human being. How could you do such a thing? There's no way God can love you. Everybody already thinks you're an awful person. So you might as well own it. I think this is especially true for the, for the person who's, who's struggling with a reoccurring sin. You know what I'm talking about? Like a, a besetting sin that, that, that the temptation just keeps coming and coming. And you know what happens when you succumb to it for what feels like the thousandth time. That's where Satan really loves to come and to plant some lies. And he'll say, 
You know what God's word said, that the, the person who loves him is the one who obeys his commandments, and you did this, and you knew better, and God would want nothing to do with you now. You could never be of any use to him. Don't even think about signing up for that mission trip or offering to serve in Kids Rock. In fact, it's just, it's better off if you don't go anywhere near them because all you're going to do is you're going to corrupt them with your sin. That's what Satan likes to do. He likes to come and he likes to whisper lies. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to bring about conviction of sin and Satan wants to bring about condemnation. And there's a big difference between the two. Conviction should lead to repentance, but condemnation leads to despair. But here's what happens. When we practice confession, we mess up Satan's game plan. We allow someone to come and to speak truth into our lives instead of lies. Keith Drury writes this, Confession opens the door to feeling forgiven. We may have long ago confessed our sins to God, yet still feel a tinge of guilt. Why? Because being forgiven and feeling forgiven are two different things. That's true, isn't it? Mm-hmm. We can be forgiven in a moment by God, yet continually carry a sense of guilt. When we confess to others, see their forgiving attitude, and hear their pronouncement that God has indeed forgiven us, we often find the assurance of forgiveness that we crave. Feeling forgiven makes it easier to forgive ourselves. So this is, this is so true. When you confide in another person, you aren't looking for someone to say, oh, you know, that wasn't so bad. That wasn't that big of a deal. If someone confides in you, you shouldn't dismiss their sin. When you, when you confide in someone, what you want is for someone to speak truth into your life, for someone to look at you and say, you sinned and what you did was wrong. But at the same time, they're going to help you with restoration because they're going to go on to remind you that God's promises are true, that God doesn't put conditions on his promises, that what makes us acceptable to God isn't what we have done or didn't do. It's what Jesus did. A person will remind us that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And they will come and they can help relieve us of that burden that we might otherwise carry. So a, a, a person, uh, if you have a good confessor, what they'll do is after you've confessed, they're going to pray over you. And they might pray scripture over you, like, like Romans 8.1 that says, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And as a result of them praying over you and reminding you of what the gospel says, when you leave, you're going to be equipped to walk in freedom and in grace instead of in condemnation or fear or shame. A third benefit of confession is that it fosters humility. Confession encourages humility. You see, when we sin, our tendency is identical to Adam and Eve. You remember what Adam and Eve did when they first sinned? They went and they hid and they sewed fig leaves over themselves. So they covered themselves up. And when we sin, our tendency is the exact same. 
We want to hide it. We want to minimize it. We want to downplay it. We want to obscure it. Now, we might not go and sow fig leaves for ourselves, but, but we, we kind of do the same thing when we engage in image management and we figure out exactly what it is we want to portray and we want to project. And what happens is when we do that, we create distance in our relationships. We create space. And no one gets to know the real us. And you know what that pattern fosters? Pride. It causes pride to grow. And the more prideful we become, the scarier confession becomes. Because confession isn't just something that's, oh, this is going to be a little embarrassing. It becomes a threat to our very identity. However, when we confess sin, when we share it with someone, when we bring it into the light, it's, it's a powerful antidote to pride. When we admit our trespasses to another person, what happens is, is it, it forces us to make a sobering self-assessment of ourselves. And when we share that, we, I'm not saying go and confess everything to everybody, but when we allow just a few people to get to know the real us, who we really are at our core, what it does is it promotes humility and it helps, helps us have a secure identity in Jesus Christ. So that's another powerful benefit of confession. A fourth benefit of confession is that it invites mercy. Proverbs 28.13 says this, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. So some of you might remember a scandal that rocked Washington, D.C. just about 10 years ago. There was a lady uh, who went by the name the D.C. Madam, and she ran an escort service, and she released the names of thousands of individuals who had used her services. Some of you remember this? Well, one of the more high-profile names that came out when these records were released was a senator from Louisiana. And when everything went public and his name started showing up in the newspapers, guess who wasn't surprised? His wife and his marriage counselor. Because several years prior, when the incident first happened, he confessed that serious sin to his wife. And when the news broke, his wife stood beside him at the press conference and she told the reporters that this is something that he had shared and they had worked through together several years prior. Now, were there still consequences from this man's sin? Absolutely. It would have been far better had he never sinned. But because he confessed, the, the consequences were far less severe than they could have been. There is more hope for a confessed sinner than for a conceited saint. Confession, it, it, it invites mercy. A fifth benefit of confession is that it promotes health. In the passage Christian read for us earlier, this is King David. He's lamenting. 
And he says this in verse 3. He says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. You know, sometimes an illness can be a result of sin. I think Paul talks about this too in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where he's, he's discussing people who are celebrating the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And he goes on to say, that's why some among you are weak and sick, and some have even fallen asleep. When we sin and we try and suppress it, we try and bury it, we try and conceal it, it can sometimes begin to affect us physically. We're integrated beings. And and our our spiritual state can influence our physical well-being. Now, in Psalm 32, I realize that, that David is addressing God. He's not talking about confessing to a bunch of people. He's talking about confessing to God. But I think there's a principle here. And, uh, and John Piper agrees with me, so I feel like I'm on really good ground. Or I agree with John Piper, I guess you should say. That th- there's a correlation between concealing sin and feeling miserable. And what happens is, Relief comes, the solution is found in verse 5. When the psalmist acknowledges his sin, when he uncovers his iniquity, that's when the healing begins. And I think this is very uh, similar to the truth that we see revealed in James 5.16. So in in the preceding verses of James 5.16, what's going on is uh, James is talking about when someone's sick and what to do. And he moves then from, I think, the specific to a a more general situation. And he says, on the basis of God just being very ready to, to hear prayer, he says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So at times, confession and prayer can be very important for our healing. And you know, this is, this is true not only individually, I think it's also true corporately. It's, it's true for an entire church. So many of you know that the, the spiritual heritage of Winston-Salem can be traced all the way back to the Moravian church. But, did, but many of you know that uh, the Moravian church almost didn't make it. So the Moravian church uh, can trace its origin back to a guy by the name of Count Zinzendorf when he allowed this group of spiritual refugees to move from Moravia onto his land in what's now eastern Germany. This happened in 1722. And five years later, guess what life was like on this land? This was a community where there was division, there was bickering, there was name-calling, There were all kinds of divisions. And in 1727, in that summer, Count Zinzendorf began to go door to door and visit with these families. And the community began to do three things. They began to read the Bible and study it. They began to pray with each other. Anybody want to guess what the third one was? Began to confess their sins. And guess what happened? God did something very special. It was August 13th of 1727, and they got together for a celebration of the Lord's Supper, and God did something very special. When you read about it, it just seemed as though the the Holy Spirit came down in a very powerful way, much like the day of Pentecost, 
And that's really when the Moravian church was born. And they sent missionaries all over the world. And they had a prayer service that lasted continually for 100 years. You think about the impact they had and the role that confession played in, in moving that forward. If you're in a community where there's bickering and name-calling and factions, just imagine what happened if people were to go and confess their sins. It promotes healing. It brings health, not just individually, but for a community. So I hope uh, just these observations have allowed us to realize that confession is not only something that God commands, it's also something that can be very beneficial for us. And while I understand there still might be some trepidation, you might say, oh, I, don't, I don't know, can I really do that? Hope, hopefully, there, there's still some willingness on your part to give this a try this week. And so with that hope in mind, let's just get very practical for a moment. How should we practice confession on social media, right? No. Although I would say that if you're a public figure and your sin has affected many, it, it, that, that might be appropriate. For the rest of us, I would not advise that because this isn't about broadcasting your sin. This isn't about calling attention to yourself. The point of this is totally different. First thing I'd say is that if your sin has hurt a specific individual, you need to go to that person and you need to confess to them. If you've been rude to someone, if you've, if you've been disrespectful to someone, if you've been unkind to someone, whether it's a spouse or a roommate or a sibling or a coworker, go and make it right with that person. Jesus says that if we're offering our gift at the altar and we remember that we've wronged someone, we're to leave our gift and first go and to be reconciled to that person. We need to confess to them what we've done. And when we do that, it not only leads to, to forgiveness, it also it, it promotes healing in that relationship. At the same time, I'd encourage you to take this practice a step further and seek out a spiritually mature friend or a small group with whom you could confess the gamut of your sins. I'm talking everything, especially those sins that would otherwise remain private. Maybe sins like lying or, or envy or anger or lust. And as a wise rule of thumb, men should confess to men and women to women. And while I really enjoy the book that we're using as our companion guide, Keith Drury's book, my recommendation would be slightly different from the author's on one point. You'll see when you read it this week that Drury encourages you to start small. I say go for it. Seriously. There, you know, there's some times where you just kind of want to put a toe in the water and wade in, and sometimes it's better just to jump in and to get it over with. And I think this is one of those times. And so when you found someone that you can confess in, I'd encourage you just to lay it out there, just to go for it. And I, I think of the first time I did this, it was the start of my senior year of college, and the Lord blessed me with uh, just three great friends, and we got together, and we were connecting, and I think God had put the same thing, not just on my heart, but on the heart of some of these other guys, and it was just like this amazing thing happened. We went for it, and you can I tell you, it was so healthy for us. It's been so good for my walk with the Lord, and those guys are some of my best friends today. So I'd, I'd encourage you just 
when you find the person that you think you're going to confide in, just to lay it out there. Maybe some of you are familiar with the screw tape letters. This is a, a, a satirical work. It's a book written by C.S. Lewis. And in it, what happens is you have this senior demon who offers instruction to this junior tempter. And I've been in men's groups before where we've kick-started this discipline of, of confession by writing our own screw tape letter. Now, it wasn't an entire book or anything. It was only about a page. But the way this works is you write as if you're writing to a junior tempter, and you sort of use it as an opportunity to disclose those particular temptations that would be most attractive to you, the ones that would be most likely to trip you up and to cause you to stumble. And if you're in a small group and uh, you, you want to give this a shot, just let me know. There's some other guys in the church who would be happy to talk to you about how you can go about writing your own screw tape letter and using this as a means of beginning to practice the discipline of confession. Well, on this day when we do think about confession, I think it's very fitting that we would end our time together with a celebration of the Lord's Supper. Because this meal that we are about to partake it reminds us that we need to take confession seriously because God takes sin very seriously. So we have this tendency to, to downplay sin, to minimize it, to say, well, you know, let's not call that. Let's just say I made some mistakes or I made some poor choices. But this meal reminds us that we can't do that. This meal tells us that God takes sin so seriously that his son, Jesus, had to come and to die in our place. This meal forces us to realize that the wages of sin is death. And yet at the same time, this meal extend to a, extends to us so much hope. This meal reminds us of the good news of Jesus Christ because when we taste the bread and we drink the cup, we're reminded of all the promises of Jesus Christ. We're reminded that God accepts us, not on the basis of what we do, but on the basis of what Jesus did. And when Jesus said, it is finished, we realize that what that means is that in order for us to experience forgiveness, that we don't have to go and, and do anything other than place our faith in Jesus Christ. And because, because of that sacrifice that Jesus made, because of his death in our place, that God can cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This meal reminds us that, that if you're sitting here and you're thinking, you know, you wouldn't be saying that if you knew what I did. If, if you knew what I really did, there, there's, there's no way you would say that I could be forgiven. I want you to think about that for a moment. If that's your thought, if that's the idea, idea you're entertaining, really what you're saying is you're saying, Jesus, your death on the cross wasn't enough. You're saying, Jesus, 
it wasn't enough. It wasn't sufficient. And you, you, you know that's the evil one feeding you lies. You know that Jesus' blood is powerful enough to cleanse us from any sin, that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There are no conditions on that. That is an unconditional promise. As we prepare now to celebrate this meal, I want to read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where the Apostle Paul gives us some instructions. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So we take that to mean that this meal is available for all those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And if you haven't done that yet, when you, you, we're going to give you two options. And it's not me, this is the Lord. I'd say one, well, the best decision you can make right now is to place your faith in Jesus Christ and to become his follower and then partake of this meal and be reminded of all the benefits that come from placing your faith in him. And if you're not ready to do that yet, I would just say, don't, don't drink it in an unworthy manner. Uh, just use this time as an opportunity to reflect on your relationship with God. And when the elements are passed, you can just pass them to the person next to you. I'd also say this. Uh, after you've been served the bread and the juice, as is our practice, if you have a need for any prayer, I want to invite you to come forward. But I also want to invite you to come forward if you've been carrying around a burden. If you've got a weight on your shoulder. If, if you're struggling with assurance of forgiveness. That would be another great reason to come forward. Because today, I believe that the Lord would want to relieve you of that guilt and remind you of his promises so that when you leave here, you could do so walking in freedom and in grace, not in fear and condemnation. Will you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we come before you. And we thank you for your steadfast love. And God, we would realize now in this hour that one of the reasons that we don't take confession seriously, confession to you, confession to others, is because we don't take sin seriously. And we know that must grieve you when we think about what our sin cost. When we're reminded that while we were sinners, 
that Christ died to us, died for us. And we thank you for sending Jesus. And if you're here and you realize that you have never placed your trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you know that salvation isn't something that God wants you to try and achieve. It's something that he wants you to receive by grace through faith. I want to give you the opportunity to do that now. You can pray a prayer like this. Jesus, I thank you for living the perfect life I could never live. And I recognize that you bore the penalty on the cross that I earned through my disobedience, through my sin. And I believe that you rose again. I place my trust in you and I want to be your follower. Help me now to walk in newness of life. All of this we pray in the name of the risen one. Amen. Would the ushers please come forward?